0: Welcome, everyone, to this week's Citizens Climate Training Program. It's a weekly webinar program of Citizens Climate Lobbies that provides CCL supporters like you and I with access to in depth learning opportunities on topics related to climate change and effective climate advocacy. I'm your host, Brett Cease, and tonight our topic is examples of state and local implementation of the Inflation Reduction Act climate funds. We're going to be joined by Nick Berger. Washington, D.C.'s Deputy Director of Energy Administration in the Department of Energy and Environment in D.C. for an overview of how state-level entities are applying for grants related to the Inflation Reduction Act and the important dates in the application process that have already happened or that are anticipated ahead. Nick will also highlight some helpful resources to use to estimate benefits in terms of climate reductions and other co-benefits, as well as how CCL volunteers that want to be a support to their local city and state planning offices can be most effective in helping provide that public support and momentum. Dr. Nick Berger is the deputy director of the Energy Administration at the District of Columbia's Department of Energy and Environment. He was previously a senior economist at the Rand Corporation and the director of Rand's Washington office. He holds a PhD in economics from the University of California at Santa Barbara, and his research has focused on energy, climate, and resilience issues What a wonderful role to be in now, Nick. At DOEE, Nick leads a team that is working to improve the district's building energy efficiency, hence a wonderful overlap with our own building electrification policy agenda area. Access to renewable energy and clean transportation options what a wonderful portfolio. We are so honored to have you here tonight, Nick. And if we've done our job well, all of you attending live or listening in later will have the chance to walk away with the following three learning goals. We'll provide an overview of what DC is up to And any details of the grants that have been applied for, their timeline, and any estimation on benefits for climate reductions or other co-benefits. We'll give a high-level overview of the application process that all states are currently undergoing and some important timelines that can extend not only from Nick's experience leading this effort in D.C., but where you might be tuning in from. And we'll also have a chance to hear right from somebody in D.C. that is in charge of helping these grants and make them possible, recommendations for how we as CCL volunteers can be supportive in our own local city-state planning offices, how we can be most effective in helping provide that public forum space and momentum like we've shared. So with that, Nick, you have a wonderful crew here tonight. We are so honored for you to give your time, especially so late in the evening on the East Coast, and I will pass screen share to you uh, to start your presentation here.
1: Excellent. Brett, thank you so much. That was a a truly lovely introduction, and I appreciate uh, you and the entire group here inviting me this evening to sort of talk with you all about the, I think, great and amazing and full of potential work that we are doing at DOEE here in the District of Columbia. Um, I think the learning objectives that you outlined Brett are stellar and I would ask that everyone on the call like work to hold me to those so if you feel like I'm not hitting one of those, once we get to the end of the next you know 10 or 15 minutes, um, come back in questions ask what I ask what's on your mind or what I missed and I will do my best uh, to at least share the perspective of what we're doing in DC. Um, or sort of maybe we can collectively point toward other resources or information that that kind of get you the information you need. So um, I won't do any more introduction of myself because Brett did a great job. Um, I will just say that I'm a 16 year resident of the District of Columbia. I did grow up pretty much on the other side of the US in, in the great state of Alaska. So I was born and raised in Alaska. I meandered my way, as you heard, through California and then ultimately over here to the East Coast. Um, I love my form, you know, my home state of Alaska. I love my current home in DC, and I I've been working with DOE now for about a year and a month or two. So I'm still relatively new in this role, but I really genuinely could not love it more. I always tell people I started this job. Uh, I accepted this job two or three weeks before the Inflation Reduction Act passed. And if you were paying attention, you remember that was a very bleak time. We all thought this thing was dead, like going nowhere. So I accepted this job. Then between that and my start date, the Inflation Reduction Act passed and everything flipped on its head. And so I got to take on the role of helping manage the district's clean energy climate transition at like probably one of the most exciting times in, in my lifetime I'm, I'm going to bet. So what I'll do is um, focus a little bit on the, the federal funding landscape that we see in the district that is not going to be the same as the landscape where you are, whether you're in Kentucky or New Jersey or California, because different states, um, while they all have access to some of the same funds, states have different priorities. So I always tell people I'm um, a privilege of being the the sort of uh, director of the Energy Office in DC means that I don't have to worry about some things. So my colleagues in New Jersey spend a lot of time thinking about offshore wind. I don't think about offshore wind at all because I have no offshore to deal with. Um, so if I'm not hitting on something from a funding perspective um, or types of buildings or uh, Technologies that we're thinking about. um, Please know that it's because you know we have the District of Columbia as a 69 square mile, entirely urban area, um, which I think is interesting and relevant to all the cities in all of your states. But we don't have rural areas. We don't deal with uh, long distance transmission. So we do have some different challenges than you all. But I will talk about what we're doing from a federal perspective in terms of funding and then kind of shift into specifically for the Inflation Reduction Act rebates kind of how we're thinking about it. So what you see on the screen, which if it's small, I apologize, I'll I'll kind of hit the highlights and we're going to send the slides out after what you see on the screen is a summary of the energy focused federal funding that my team has applied for at DOEE. Uh, The larger agency is applying for a lot of other funding related to waterways and uh, air quality monitoring, but this is really the energy funding and kind of what we spend our days thinking about. All of our work and the way that we think about how we structure and use federal funding is guided by our core planning documents. Um, You'll see on the top right of the screen the Clean Energy DC plan. So this is a plan Uh, It came out about five years ago. So we are in the process right now of updating this plan and it's designed to be uh, a roadmap. It highlights the policy priorities that we think are most important for the District of Columbia and that helps us as we think about applying for energy storage grants or uh, community uh, conservation block grants like how do we how do we allocate that money to what types of programs to what types of technologies. So as you can see for DC, and I think most of your states would look similar if you're from California, your numbers are a lot bigger. Um, if you're from Vermont or Alaska, your numbers are actually probably pretty similar to ours because a lot of these are based on population, not all of them. What you can see is just a, a sort of a selection of the different types of federal funding that we are we are looking to use over the next uh, one to 10 years to drive our energy efficiency and electrification goals. So um, the the overarching goal that clean energy DC feeds into is our is our climate target for the district, and that is a net zero greenhouse gas emission target by 2045. I know many states have similar targets, some are probably a little more aggressive, some might not be quite that aggressive, but our goal in the district is really to achieve essentially zero carbon emissions by 2045 because we don't really have carbon sinks you know we're not doing a lot of sequestration we're not we're not planting forests really we're about emissions and i'll talk a little bit in a minute about where our emissions come from and how that drives our priorities uh, but that's our focus our focus is to drive those emissions down so um in a nutshell that's about electrification sort of getting rid of natural gas which is our main source of, of fossil fuel emissions aside from gasoline in our cars Um, And then as we're doing that, making sure that we're making our buildings more efficient so that we lower our total energy consumption um, and thinking about uh, our grid and how our grid can support these priorities, whether it's uh, increased demand for electricity through electrification um, or increased clean energy generation through uh, solar power, which is our main renewable energy source that we produce inside the District of Columbia boundaries. So um, in the top of the orange section here is funding that we have already applied for, um, some of which is in hand, Um, so our state, like I think most of your states at this point, if you applied, should have that first line, which is the energy storage grants that comes out of the Department of Energy's GRIP funding, and these are grants that can be used by different states in different ways. We're focusing on bringing uh, commercial, like battery storage systems to larger buildings in the district and starting to build out that storage capacity, which is still um, in its infancy in DC. In the bottom in the green section are the funds that focus um, primarily on the inflation reduction acts, energy and efficiency rebate programs and supporting programs. So our state's allocation, because D.C. does get to operate like a state when it comes to federal formula funds, our state's allocation for the IRA rebates money is that bottom line, so $59.5 million, roughly half and half between the HOMES program, the Energy Efficiency for Buildings program, and then the, and this acronym keeps changing, I think the latest is the HERE, but it's often called HERA, it's the it basically, the Energy Efficiency Appliance Rebates Program. So 50-50, roughly $30 million for each. Our state, again, like every state, has access to what are called early administrative funds. And this is a mechanism that the Department of Energy uh, released in early fall, late summer, where they're giving states access to a portion of that $59 million. So row one and row three of the green table are not additive, they're actually... A subset of each other. Um, and that lets states kind of get moving uh, on preparing to do the application for the full rebate amount and doing preparatory work. So just today, and I'll find this link, just today, the Department of Energy released a tracking uh, website. So you can go and see for your state where they are in that admin fund application process whether the state has applied and whether they've received those funds and that tells you a little bit about where your state is whether they're kind of ahead of the game kind of on target or maybe a little behind Now, i will say if you look up our our dc status you're going to see that we have yet to apply for the early admin funds that doesn't mean that we're behind Honestly, what that means is that I have the privilege of, of working in a pretty well-staffed, well-resourced office. So for us, um, my team is about 45 people. For us, uh, these admin funds aren't as critical. For other states, you know, like the state of Pennsylvania, I think for a very large state has something like eight or 10 people in its entire energy office. The admin funds are much more important. They allow states to hire technical support, to hire consultants, or to even bring on new staff to develop this sort of complicated comprehensive IRA rebates program um, using that early admin funds. The middle line there is a uh, focuses on the contractor training money that states have access to that's really designed to support the IRA rebates. And I'm happy to come back to that if anyone wants me to. Okay, so just a little bit of a recap of the process. For some of you, this is a lot of this is old news. You probably know this, but so again, about a year and a change ago, we passed the Inflation Reduction Act. And then the next, I would say, six months to eight months were us in at the state level kind of sitting and speculating, reading the legislation, trying to anticipate where the law was going, uh, where the funding would go, and how it could be folded into our existing work where we needed to develop new programs. But we weren't getting a lot of information from the federal government. So even though... Um, you know, residents of every state kind of knew as of August of last year, started hearing about these rebates. There was really no action happening all the way until about the summertime. Then in July of last year, the Department of Energy released its formal guidance. This is something that the states had really been waiting for because it was really all the rules that dictate exactly how we not only apply for, but ultimately administer the rebate funds. And as you can imagine, like any federal program, there are quite a few rules. And um, the rules, I think, mostly make sense, but they require planning and preparation. And so between July and now, states, including us in D.C., have started um, to move from like digesting and understanding the rules into actually constructing applications for the funding, and in parallel thinking about and starting to plan out how we're actually going to implement the programs. One thing I will say that I think somewhat unique and actually quite exciting to be part of this work in the District of Columbia is that we operate, as I said, as a state. So we get a state allocation for things like the IRA rebates, But we also operate as a locality. So we are a city. And so my job is both to secure federal funds, but then also to think about how we actually administer those funds, how we design programs and push them out. Um, And in in many states, there's a split. And so your state energy office might be responsible for one piece. And then they would devolve responsibility or even push funding down. I saw one of the very first quotes was about funding for localities. So for some of these funding mechanisms, I'm going to back up, like the energy efficiency community, sorry, community block grants, that um, fourth line down in the orange box, that's a source of formula funds. Funds are allocated sort of automatically to each state, but for, for most states, they're required to then push that money down to localities. So cities, municipalities will actually be able to apply through their state for access to some of those funds. Um, We don't have that requirement in DC because there's no distinction really between the state and the locality. So the next steps for states, now that we have this guidance, now that the application for funding is out, is really to do those steps that you see on the screen. So we have to determine how we're going to implement. States are taking different approaches. Some states are looking to outsource uh, all the work of of, of either or both applying for federal rebate funds or ultimately administering those funds other states are are doing the opposite and i would put us in this camp we are looking to develop our own application and ultimately then at at least from a, a a high level perspective actually manage and implement the rebate programs ourselves we will work with partners i can talk a little bit about that if folks are interested um but we are retaining a fair bit of control about over how we how we design and implement and ultimately push out this money and there's some reasons for that that I'll get into in a minute other states are taking a hybrid approach they might hire someone to help with the application but then ultimately decide that they're going to run that program themselves so you 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 kind of determine your overall approach and then you have to develop this application it's a fairly complicated document the department of energy wants to see a lot of information about who we're gonna be targeting, how we're gonna be collecting information from our um, residents, um, how we're approaching quality assurance and quality control, how we're verifying the income eligibility for residents, um, how we're identifying and selecting preferred contractors because you have to have a a preferred contractor list who can ultimately go out and do the work of installing efficiency or electrification upgrades in homes or, or buildings. You got to figure that all out Um, and there's some preparatory activities, and I think this is one of the areas where groups like you all can start to get involved. So every state in preparing that application needs to go out and do some level of kind of civic engagement. They've got to go out and talk to the residents of their state about their plans and get feedback from residents to, to listen to them and incorporate that feedback into their application. That is a required part of the federal IRA application. So that's one step, there's some others. We will then as states submit our applications and then we await DOE approval. So DOE has told us many times that they are very enthusiastic about us getting these funds out and into the hands of residents to actually invest in the electrification, the decarbonization work that we need to do. Um, So I think they are going to do everything that they can to move quickly, but again, These are complicated applications. There's a lot of boxes to check. It's going to take some time. We don't know how long. um, But once that approval comes in, then states can submit what's called a blueprint. So we take our overall plan and then we sort of bring that down into a more concrete set of actions that talk about how we're actually going to implement different aspects of our program. There's a a period of time where we have to submit that, then we wait, then we get the final go ahead from the Department of Energy. They send us the money and then we can begin implementation. So how long is that all gonna take? It's not clear. We have on our website for DC a message because we know people are interested. They're excited about this money. What we say is that we don't expect to be able to start administering uh, the rebate funds out of IRA until summer of 2024. It is possible that some states are going to be able to move more quickly than that. And I think that's one thing that as you're reaching out to your state energy office, it's a good thing to ask them about. Like, what is your plan? What's the timeline you're pushing for? Um, Some states are going to be applying for homes before the here rebates. Some are going to apply for here first, then homes later. Some will do both at the same time. Um, It's really up to the state to decide how they go about that. Um, But that's information that they should be able to tell you, and then you can help, um, and that will help you anticipate what the timing is going to look like. Okay, so that's in general the process. Let me talk just a minute about the District of Columbia and how we're thinking about this this funding and how we're um, trying to apply it to our priorities. So one thing to know about the district, because it is a city, is 75% of our greenhouse gas emissions come from our buildings. So that's a lot uh, relative to other states, Um, the remainder the rest of the 25% is about 20% from transportation and about 5% from other. So for us when we think about these rebates this, these are a critical tool to help us tackle the main source of emissions. Within that emissions from buildings though, the districts a pretty dense place. We don't have the tallest buildings we don't have Philadelphia or New York style or LA style buildings but we have pretty tall 12, 10 story multifamily buildings. So these larger buildings constitute a a major share of our stock of housing and importantly, a major share of our greenhouse gas emissions. So what that means for us is, is that we think about our electrification and decarbonization strategy. We need to think not only about single family homes and helping them electrify, but we need to think about these big buildings which have different challenges they require different technologies they work with different contractors it's just a very different landscape between these two types of buildings we don't want to neglect either we got to think about both in addition our single family housing stock if you've been to the district is in many parts of the city including where i live in capitol hill it's beautiful it's quaint and it's very old that means we have a lot of buildings that are uh complicated to work in they're complicated to electrify people have crammed water heaters into little areas under their stairs they've got very leaky envelopes Um, there's a lot of reasons why it's just difficult to make buildings efficient to convert them uh, over to fully electric energy consumption we also have very clear in my mind and well understood equity needs in the district so we we know a lot about our residents we know the distribution of residents whether they're higher income middle income or many of them lower income and we made a very deliberate decision more or less as soon as the ira uh, rebates was announced uh, when the law was passed that our focus in dc is going to be very much squarely on the lower income Uh, segment of our population we know that this population faces more or less the same costs that everyone else does their houses are just as old they're just as leaky they're just as challenging to electrify Um, but obviously many of those households don't have the resources if we go to them and we say okay we can bring you 15 or 20 or 25 thousand dollars and all you need to bring is five or ten thousand dollars to electrify your home that's going to be a deal breaker that's not going to work for them If we offer them a loan for 10 grand, even at a great interest rate, that may not be something they can qualify for or debt that they want to take on. So um, our focus in DC is really about making electrification accessible to particularly low income households and making it for the, the lowest income households free. That's our goal. Um, and i'll come back to why that's a challenge in a minute and that gets to i think some things that you all can think about as you're engaging with your states and working with them to think through how they're approaching um, making these rebates accessible uh, to lower income households and thinking about sort of the equity of how this is going to work we have very specific grid challenges district so we have in general an older electrical grid um, a grid that um Our energy utility has spent a lot of time to make more reliable, which is great, but it's also got parts of the grid that can't support major increases in electric demand or electric supply. So when we go to put solar on buildings, we have to think very carefully about whether the grid at that particular point can handle, you know, additional solar capacity. Similarly, if we take a big building and we want to convert it from a gas boiler, gas water heater system to an all electric system, can the grid at that point handle that additional electrification load? The way that we're tackling that is by thinking about efficiency and then thinking about some of the emerging technologies um, that can manage how much power is drawn from a grid at any one point in time. So I'm a big kind of fanboy, if you will, of these 120 volt appliances where companies are sticking a battery onto the bottom or the side of an induction stove or a water heater And allowing those appliances to plug into 110 volts, draw power in a moderated way, and then provide that burst of energy when you need to cook or heat water or dry your clothes. So, those technologies are going to be very important for us in DC. We have some tools available to us, and this really informs the way we think about the IRA rebates. We have something called the DC Sustainable Energy Utility. It is a privately run entity that's on contract with our agency, and we use DCSEU to be our our implementation arm for a lot of our pre-existing rebate programs. So we don't have some things that many of you probably have, like a utility rebate program. So our electric utility currently does not offer rebates for heat pump water heaters or energy efficient dryers. But our DC sustainable energy utility, which is not a, it's not a true utility, um, it, they do, they can offer those benefits. Um, and we have the added advantage of having a direct relationship with that entity, DCSEU, um, whereas other states are having to think about how do they coordinate with their utilities to deliver combined benefits through the IREP rebates and other state level or local rebate programs, say through a utility. That's an ad- another added challenge. The last thing I'll I'll say that's, I think, challenging um, about D.C. is that we are obviously, if you know anything about D.C., we're part of a multi-state region, right? So many people who work on my team live in Maryland. Some of them live in Virginia. When you want to go buy a new dryer, you might drive to our Home Depot in the district. We only have one. But you might also drive to the Home Depot in Maryland or the Home Depot in the other part of Maryland, right? Right. So we need to think about um, how residents of the district access the technologies and the services that contractors provide to install those technologies. And that is driving us to think about how do we coordinate? What we don't want to have happen if we can avoid it is um, there's a contractor who's trying to work across the border between Maryland and Virginia, and they face one set of rules in Maryland around the IRB. rebates and a totally different set of rules in Virginia. That's that's gonna be really frustrating for those contractors. So I think that's another thing to keep in mind is if you're in a state or a part of your state where you have these kind of cross state economies, that's something that um, your energy office I think should be thinking about. Uh, they They may not be able to fully align policies. I can't tell Maryland what to do and I wouldn't want to and I wouldn't want them to tell us what to do, but we have started conversations and there's mechanisms for states to talk to each other to try to align our approaches um, and make this as seamless as possible for residents and for the companies that are going to be providing these products. Okay, so the, the last thing I'll talk about, then I'll, I'll stop talking and let you ask questions, um, is some of the actions that we're taking. And here's where I want to get into more explicitly things that I, I think would be good for folks like you all working in and with your states and your localities to sort of be aware of, and maybe points where you can um, ask questions or influence the process. So we talked about how I talked about how in the district we have very strong equity priorities. We want to think about these income groups and we got to think about how we deliver services to them. And that's really informed the way we've gone about both planning for the Iowa rebates, but also thinking about other resources that we need to bring to bear. So, as I said, we decided early on that we wanted to make the rebate, the technology for electrification free to low income households. We know that under the um, federal Ira rebate programs, there are caps so for the here appliances program it's $14,000 for a low income household. For the homes program the numbers get complicated, but basically you can cover a certain percentage of the cost of a set of efficiency upgrades, but in neither case, mostly is there an ability to cover 100% of the cost. So what that meant for us is we sort of set our sights very squarely on figuring out how we bring additional money to bear so that we can bridge that gap between a parcel coverage from the IRA money and full cost coverage for low income qualified households. We worked with our essentially our legislature, it's our city council, um, and we emphasized this challenge and they responded. And so in our budget last year that got passed in the district, the the legislature sort of added additional money to our agency's budget explicitly for this bridging effect. So now I have federal money that I can bring through the IRA rebates, and then I have local funds that I can marry up very flexibly with those federal funds in order to cover 100% of the cost for the groups of households where we think that's really important. I wanna emphasize, I think that's a hard thing to do. Getting your state to provide money is always challenging, Um, but to the extent that that's a priority for you and you're thinking about the the importance of how do we bring these benefits to low-income households, I think thinking about sort of what level of cost coverage do you need to hit and how can you work with your state to bring that money? States do have the ability to combine sources of federal funding, but it's gonna be limited and it's gonna be complicated. So for us, for sure, the easiest and most straightforward thing was to bring local money that's relatively flexible and then pair that with the federal money. Um, so that kind of covers our income group priorities and then the cost coverage goals that we that we set in, in, to meet those income group priorities. Um, you hear me talk a lot about... Um, our focus on low income households. And so you may be thinking, well, what about middle income households? What about upper income households? We want everyone to electrify. Um, So there's a few things we do uh, or that we're thinking about doing so that we make sure that we're driving electrification across the full spectrum of, of residents of the district, even as we as an agency focus on sort of certain groups that we think need the most attention. Um, So I'm kind of skipping ahead a little bit, but in that last bullet there, the role of partners becomes really important. So as we've had, we started thinking about how do we make sure that we're not sort of neglecting different groups of households, how are we bringing information to say middle income households where they may have access to some rebates through us, but they're going to also need to rely on things like tax credits that are built into the Inflation Reduction Act, To get the most uh, cost coverage for them as possible we are thinking very squarely about how other groups can help us do that so we do that in a couple ways one is we um talk to our advocacy groups in the district we have um some groups the chesapeake climate action network our local chapter of the sierra club and we emphasize to them both what our approach is going to be and how we're going to implement the inflation reduction act rebates But also where we would really value them uh, working with us to bring additional information and awareness to the other residents of the district where we're not going to spend quite as much time and energy. So um, we've got some groups that have sprung up that have seen that there's a need, uh, whether that's for outreach to households to educate them make them aware of um, what resources are available to them. Uh, There's a need to. make sure that we can connect contractors, qualified contractors with those households across all income groups. And we're seeing some, some uh, nonprofit groups spring up with that mission in mind. So for us, what we think about then is, how, what's our role in supporting those groups? So if you think back to that federal funding slide, one of the great things about these different buckets of money that the federal government's making available to states is that we have a lot of flexibility in how we allocate that money. So what we're thinking about is where do we need to make grants to nonprofit organizations um, who we know can help us sort of spread the word, can help us educate, can help us reach different household groups, maybe in some cases, low-income households, maybe in other cases, middle-income or high-income households. Um, So for us, that role of partners is, is I think, going to be critical. Um, The other way that we're thinking about partners is even though we have... Uh, sort of our laser sights set on working with our low-income housing population in the district, we also know that we're not always a trusted partner for those residents. Um, They look at us as the government. They don't know us. um, They may be skeptical of us. And so that's where we rely explicitly on groups that have stronger connections. So a good example of that, there's uh, two neighborhoods in the district um, in our Ward 7, which is one of our lower-income uh, wards. We have eight wards in D.C., Ward 7 is, is one of the lower income wards. And in that ward, there are these two neighborhoods where some of our faith-based groups have done a lot of work to do outreach and engagement. They've gone door-to-door, they've talked to households about electrification, they've done indoor air quality measurement of people's kitchens around their gas stoves, they've shown households what their gas appliances are doing to their indoor air quality, And as a result, they've got a lot of households that are really raring to go when it comes to electrification. And that's great. So we look to groups like that who have, as part of their mission, um, a willingness and an an intent to take the time to go out. And and we are looking to partner with them to um, work with them and their trust relationships that they have with communities um, so that we can make sure that we are able to access and get into those neighborhoods and deliver these benefits. All right, let me pause because I think I'm I'm over my time. So I think I should probably pause, but let me just think if there's there's anything else that I wanted to mention. Oh, I guess one other thing I will talk about is just like this point about the role of existing programs. So as I mentioned, we have our DC Sustainable Energy Utility. We worked with DCSU to stand up both a low income electrification pilot a couple of years ago, as well as a pilot that focused on larger multifamily buildings. Um, focusing on electrification and energy efficiency for both types of buildings, we are now looking to those pro- those existing programs as ways to channel the IRA money so that we're not starting from scratch, and I think that's um, that's going to be very critical for us. I think the experience for different states is going to vary depending on whether they can rely on or use an existing program whether that's a program the state runs programs that local governments run. Or programs that their electric utilities run, but thinking about taking advantage of that infrastructure and then using the federal money to supplement what that program is already doing. The benefit obviously being that you don't have to start over, you can sort of build on some momentum that you already have. So I think helping your state recognize, like if you live in a city and your city has a really good robust efficiency program that, you know, hopefully the state knows about. But you can help point them in that direction and say, look, can we work with you to figure out how the rules of our program align with the rules that the IRA rebates are subject to and and kind of marry those up and figure out how to make that as seamless as possible so that we're not only setting up new programs, which, you know, take time to get up and running. I, I think that that Figuring out that sort of the the word that the federal government often uses is braiding or stacking, but it's kind of integrating existing programs with this new federal money. That's a priority for us. And I think it would be an important tool
0: for states. But, but- please feel free if there's anything that we didn't get into tonight that you want to get connected to, my email is here, Brett at citizensclimate.org. I'm happy to be a conduit to Nick and to our electrification action team, you name it. Reach out to email me you can also get a hold of them at this following url that i've also put in the chat and the q a and then cclusa.org forward slash forums is our general site-wide forums you're more than welcome to also put any questions there Uh, but with that we are at the top of the hour we hope that you found tonight's training useful and empowering as i know i did and i'm going to unmute all lines so that we can tell you nick how much we really appreciate your time and help and being here and guiding us to how to be most effective advocates thank you all so much have a wonderful night thank you brad Excellent.
1: thank you thank, all. You. thank, you. thank that you. Well, for you thank you, very thank, very
2: you. thank you for listening to this episode of citizens climate lobby's training program you can tune into more episodes anywhere podcasts are available inspired by what you heard today join citizens climate lobby to advocate for bipartisan climate solutions Go to community.citizensclimate.org to find more trainings, resources, your local chapter, national action teams, discussion forums, and more. Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Citizens Climate. We also invite all of our listeners to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more inspiration. Like what you hear? Recommend us to your friends and make sure to give us a five-star rating. It helps us show up on other listeners' feeds. Feel free to pass on any suggestions for future episodes in the comments as well. And together, we are creating the political will for a livable world.